Well, I didn't think I was rich because uh, I'd always had friends who had more toys. I had friends who had bigger houses, and I had friends who had nicer clothes. So, I mean, sure, I got a car when I was 17, but it was an old car, and it, uh, was, it had pleather interior, plastic leather. It was maroon. It, it froze and cracked at, at, like, under 30 degrees, and it shook at 65, the whole steering column, which I think was my parents' plan all along so I wouldn't speed. But, I mean, <laughs> I wasn't rich. It was just... Uh, an old car. And, and sure, I went to college, um, but it was just a state university, and, uh, and I, not a private school, so, so I'm not rich. And, and sure, I own a house, or I, I will own a house in like 22 more years, um, <laughs> but it's just a one-story house uh, with a two-car garage in a middle-class neighborhood, so, so I'm not rich. Um, Especially when I think about uh, Christina Onassis. Maybe you remember reading about Christina Onassis. If you don't, I'll tell you about her. She was, married, or she was the daughter of Aristotle Onassis, shipping ty- tycoon from Greece. He married Jackie Kennedy, Jacqueline Kennedy, Jackie O, where she got O, Onassis. Anyway, and uh, Christina was like 17 or 18 when they got married, and then uh, he died, and she took over the shipping industry when she was about 24, 25 And she ran her father's business. It was a $500 million shipping fleet that she ran. She was was okay. She was doing okay. At one point, she ran out of Coke, or so the Star Tribune, or Chicago Tribune says. She ran out of Diet Coke when she was, like, sailing in the Mediterranean. So she called her private jet and had it do a $30,000 round trip for two cases of Diet Coke. So I'm not rich. (laughs) But when I say rich, what do you think of? Like just, when you hear the word rich, is this one working now? Um, Do you think of luxury cars and sprawling mansions and multi-carat diamond rings? Or do you think of like dark coffee with deep couches taking in conversation with friends for a few hours? Or do you think of like a loving family with a home filled with peace and laughter? I mean, what do you think of when I say rich? Today, I don't really want to talk so much about the word rich, even though I think it definitely falls into this idea of margin with money. But I actually want to talk about this word pursuit. So if you're taking notes or you want to take mental notes, take a little picture in your mind of the word pursuit. If you like to take notes, write it in the upper right-hand corner of your worship folder there. Just write down the word pursuit. Um, I promise I'll come back to it, and I think it really hits what we're talking about today, because I'll be honest, on Wednesday night, like, man, I had a rockin' little life talk to give on how we can have margin with money and what that looks like, and here's simple, five simple steps to, like, having margin with your finances. And then on Thursday, God just kind of, like, lovingly, maybe he does this to you, whack, right on the side of the head, you know, really loving, like how your, maybe your father did it to you. Sometimes it was back at, no, this was just a loving little tap. Like, do I have your attention? It's pursuit. And I'm like, ah, so I had to redo the whole thing. Um, so we're going to go to First uh, Timothy 6. But before we do that, I just, I want to pray for us. Um, God, some of us came away so refreshed last week with this idea that we could come to you when we are, we're weary, 
and more burdened and more tired and more burnt out and that you give us rest. And God, how you challenged us to make room for you, to make margin for you, to remember you, to worship you, to see you. And, and now, Jesus, if you're going to be king in our lives, it means that we've got to make margin for you in every area of our life. And it's especially hard in the area of money. So I just pray that we would hear your word and that we would boldly follow it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just for a moment back on being rich, I, I, like I said, I, I didn't think I was rich, especially when I you know, compared myself to you know, Bill Gates or Christine Onassis. But then uh, I started comparing myself with other people in the world. So this is a picture of my friend uh, Jesus. Uh, I mentioned Jesus before. Jesus and I dug ditches in Honduras a couple years ago. And uh, Jesus wore the same jeans and the same shirt every day of the six days that we were together. Um, because I'm pretty sure he just had one outfit. He, um, he didn't own a car. He didn't go to college. And his house could fit inside my two-story or my two-stall garage. Um, he walked eight miles every other day one way to come and dig ditches with me. The other days he stayed with a relative so that he could have access to this clean water should he ever move back to this village someday. Jesus wasn't married. He didn't have any kids. And actually, he didn't really know how old he was because they don't celebrate birthdays in these villages. So maybe through his eyes, maybe I looked a lot like Christina Onassis. Now, I don't say this stuff to guilt you, but I just did a little research. Three billion people in the world, three billion, live on less than two U.S. dollars a day. 1.4 billion people live on less than $1.25 a day. Women in developing countries travel an average of almost four miles one way to collect water. Uh, food prices have risen 83% since 2005. Worldwide, food prices have risen 83% since 2005, disproportionately affecting those who are in poverty because they have to spend a higher level of money on their income, on their food. People living in the poorest slums of the world can pay as much as 10 times what the, we'll just call them rich people in the world, pay for clean water, to have water. In 2005, a conservative estimate was that 72 million children around the world that were elementary school age that could be in school did not enroll because they didn't value that or couldn't get access to that. And the richest 20% of the world's population receives 75% of the world's income, while the poorest 40% of the world's population receives 5% or less of the world's income. I'll say that again. Picture little pie charts in your mind. 20% of the world's population receives 75% of the world's income. 40% of the world's population, the poorest population, receive less than 5% of the world's income. So maybe my definition of rich needs to kind of be redefined. So we're going to go to this letter called 1 Timothy. And if you have a Bible, you want to open to chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, then you can tell, listen to me as I give a little introduction on this. 
This is written by Paul. He's like the master church planter. He goes around the Mediterranean, the known world, and he like he has this team of people that are kind of his disciples and they go into a city and they, they meet people that are interested in seeking God and they tell them about Jesus. Some people say yes, some people say no. And the ones that say yes, he says, here, come here. We're going to start a little community. We'll call it a church, something like that. And now the Holy Spirit's here. So good luck. You guys, will, you're going to figure it out and we're going to go to a new city. And that would take generally a few months for them to do that. And then they would go on to a new city. But in this particular city known as Ephesus, which in the first century is kind of like New York pre-9-11, it is the, it is the economic powerhouse of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, the people in Ephesus, many of the people are super, super wealthy. And granted, some of those people are actually more like indentured servants or slaves. I mean, the economic disparity in Ephesus actually probably isn't too different from New York, or actually probably not too different from the suburbs that we live in. And so they stayed in Ephesus for three years. We find that out in the book of Acts. And then they move on. And then later, Paul sends Timothy, one of these guys that traveled with him, to stay there and help these house churches that had um, people trying to figure out how to, how to follow Jesus in the first century. So in 1 Timothy 6, we see um, Paul instructing Timothy. And he says this, he says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up treasures as a good foundation for the future that they may experience true life. So before we get to this word pursuit, which I promise we'll get to, we have to talk about this word trust. Um, Trust is also, maybe it says hope in your Bible. Both um, the root word of trust and hope is this kind of idea of dependence. When um, When you trust that I'm going to pick you up at 7.15 at the airport because that's what we've prearranged, then you're going to, if you trust me, if you put your hope in that, because we prearranged that 7.15, I'm going to show up, you're going to go to the door that, that we said, and you're going to wait for my car to pull up, and you're going to be ready because you've trusted that. You've depended on that. You've put your hope into that, and so you're there. And when we have a lot of money, and I, I get that a lot is variable. But when we have a lot of money, it's easy to control our situations. It's easy to get arrogant about that. If you are unsure of that or don't think that's true, read uh, a book called The Same Kind of Different as Me. And you'll see just how easy it is. There's one guy who grew up in Texas in a lower middle class neighborhood and became a multi-billionaire. And then another guy who grew up in the slums of Louisiana and, uh, and move to the homeless population in Dallas. And these guys meet. And it's amazing what little, little bits of arrogance creep up when we have just a little bit of money. But, but beyond just that, that ease of being arrogant, it's so easy to put our trust and our hope in our money. When I was in Honduras, I looked at all the poverty, and it was so easy to see, like, these people have Jesus or nothing. 
I mean, we were on the side of a mountain at about a 30-degree angle. We bar- they barely could grow crops. No, I mean, even the people in 20 miles away in a city called Chulateca, these people kind of ignored the people that lived up in the village. One boy that was old enough to go to junior high, high school, one boy in 50 boys got up at 5 in the morning to take a two-hour horse ride to the school that he could go to so that one day he would have enough education where he could leave that village. One in 50, the other, the other 50 kids and the other 50 beyond that that didn't qualify for my statistic here, they just resigned themselves to the fact that they would always live in this village. And I'm not saying that to say that I look down on them or feel sorry for them, but I'm just saying for that, these beautiful people, it was Jesus or nothing. That was, that's it. And, and where we live, it's not Jesus or nothing. It's Jesus or everything. I mean, we put our, our trust and our hope and our dependence in houses, in spouses, in, in our education, in our transportation, in our entertainment. We put it into our 401ks, or at least we used to, um, in our activities, in our kids' activities. Sometimes we even put it into, like, oh, I just got to get my Starbucks, our, our gourmet coffee. Like, just these little bits of our hope, little bits of our trust, and all of a sudden that kind of starts to creep in. And when you say, oh, I just hope in Jesus, that, that phrase, I just put my trust in Jesus, that, that slowly, slowly, slowly starts to creep out of our vocabulary, out of our mindset. Where's that trust? Where's that hope for you today? I said I'd get to the word pursuit, but before we go there, because you might already be thinking, you know, I'm not that wealthy you know, when I look around everybody else, I don't really have a lot. I live paycheck to paycheck, and, um, you know, I don't have a lot. And, and you're right, this writer's actually referring to people that don't have to work. They're so wealthy, they don't have to work. Like, like maybe you read the Burnsville paper, the Morrises a few weeks ago, this family that I totally want to come here and tithe. Um, they... Uh, <laughs> They were the ones that bought the lottery ticket at the Lakeville um, Super America, and it's a multi-million dollar lottery ticket. You know what the first thing they did was? They called their financial advisor, and the second thing they did, he quit work, because he could. And I think um, a lot of us, a lot of us would, would love to quit work. Some of us really like our jobs, and, and that's good, but... If we had a choice between having every resource met and getting to quit work, I think we would choose that. And we would say, we would, we would read these verses. Why don't you go ahead and put those verses back up? We would read these verses and say, God, you know what? If you just make me rich in this world, I promise I won't be arrogant. I promise that I, I won't put my trust in money. I promise that I, I, I won't put my hope in it. I'll, I promise I'll give away. I'll be willing to share. I'll be generous. I promise, God, just give me the chance to prove it. I tried that prayer. You can try it too. I don't know if it's going to work for you. Um, but, but here's the thing. Like when we say that, we say, I, I promise I'll be willing to share. I promise I'm going to be generous. If you, just, if you just fill my cup up. 
Because a lot of us think generosity is like this. Like, we just, you know, we just ask God to have the lid on, right? We just ask God to, like, fill up our cup. God, God, as soon as I'm full, I promise, as soon as I'm full, you know, I'll just, my overflow will be my generosity. Yeah, that's what, that's what generosity is. It's the overflow when our cup is full. Only problem is that our cup has this unbelievable ability to leak from the bottom. So as we fill it up with stuff, it never quite gets full. Maybe you've experienced this when you've bought stuff. Um, you, you buy, you know, maybe you, you, maybe you got enough money where you finally could afford the 2011 Lexus GX470, and then they go out and make the 2012 model. And you're like, ugh, you know, I'm not quite there yet. But, or you did what lots of us did in Christmas of 2010. You bought an iPad, and you thought you were the coolest thing in the world, and that was awesome for four months, and then they come out with the iPad 2. And they put a camera on it, they made it thinner, faster, and all of a sudden you're like, this is junk. And, you know, I don't even have a problem with American Girl dolls anymore, probably because I have two girls. But, but the problem with the American Girl dolls is not that they're $100. It's they keep making more of them. And so, you know, you're like, don't you love it? Yeah, thank Grandma and Grandpa. Um, and then they're like, yeah, I do, for three months. And then they say, you know, Molly's going to retire. You know, they brought Kanani. They got the new girl. I, I need that one. And it's like, what? But but we probably shouldn't get too hard on our nine-year-old or eight-year-old or seven-year-old girls because we're not all that different. I mean, how many of us are driving around our brand-new 2004 Toyota Corolla and going, man, this thing still has the new car smell. It rocked. You know, when I get in this car, I just feel the joy of being like, this is the brand-new car. This This is the car. I made it, you know? Not too many of us. See, if, if margin, remember we defined margin last week as the difference between what we have and what we need. It's the amount available versus the amount we need. See, a lot of us, we keep thinking we don't have any margin with our money or our stuff. It's because we keep thinking we need, we need, we need, we need more. So, I don't really think the reason that most of us don't have margin with money is really found in these verses. I think more likely it's found in verses 6 through 10, which are right before this. Paul says to Timothy in verse 6, True godliness with contentment itself is great wealth. After all, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. So we, if we have enough food and clothing, we should be content. But people who long to be rich, they fall into temptation. They are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. For some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Now, go back to those verses. And if, you're, if you like to take notes in your Bible, I just encourage you to, to underline all the verbs in that, in that little passage. Longing to be rich. Craving money. 
trapped, plunged, wandered, pierced. And I'd love to say pierced is like a little needle when you go to the doctor. The actual word is like someone who impales themselves on a giant stake. Sorry to be grotesque, but it's actually like pierced. I think these verses start to really get at what it means to have margin with one. What, it, what does it mean to pursue something? Because when we fall into this trap of thinking, if, it's such a dangerous word, if. If I only had that new car, if, if we only had our house paid off, if, if I just found the person that would really truly make me happy, if my kids would just obey, if we just could do this, then we'd arrive. And it's almost like we start to say, I want it, turns into, I need it. We start to look at our, our situation, where, whatever it is, and we start to say, stop saying like, God, why have you blessed me with so much? And instead we start saying, God, why don't I have more? And I think when we, when we look into our heart of hearts, a lot of us, not all of us, I'm not trying to point fingers, but I think a lot of us sometimes get into that habit where we stop saying, God, why have you blessed me with so much? And instead you've said, God, why don't I have more? And there's this word in the Bible that, that they use for that, that we don't use anymore in America because it's like so saturated into our culture that we're like fish just swimming in it. And it's greed. I mean, greed says, I want it, not I need it. Or I want it turns into I need it. And I need it now. And greed has a way of causing us to look in directions we wouldn't normally look. And greed has a way of causing us to go to places we might not go. So, so I had a friend who got into a scheme. It was a legitimate scheme, but it was a scheme. And uh, it was a few years ago when the, when the market was good, especially the house market was good, and they could buy a house for low and they could sell it for high, and then they started to learn how to turn the, turn the mortgages in-house, not have to go to the banks to do them. And, and they got some others to put money into the game so that they could make some money. And my friend was making twenty or $30,000 a week. A week. He was getting VIP tickets to the wild. He was getting the box seats to, to Viking teams when, when they were good, um, if they were good. But, but eventually some of those deals started to get shady. And, and eventually the scheme turned into a scam. And my friend felt trapped, just like these verses. He felt a little foolish. And he didn't, want to plunge himself and his family into ruin and destruction, so he just did nothing. And then he got caught. And I called him and talked to him, and I said, I don't want to put you on the spot, but could you just tell me what some of the things that pierced your heart about this situation were? Listen to some of the things he said. Shame, guilt, severe depression, grief from the awareness of my sin that I was blind to, brokenheartedness that I was not a good steward of these things that God had provided, severe decline in health and the quality of life due to depression, 
loss of freedom with the potential of incarceration, probation, loss of a transport now, passport. Now I can't travel. Permanent felony mark on my record when seeking employment or housing. Which is kind of nothing compared to seeing the pain on my children's eyes when I told them I might have to go to jail. Hearing my children cry at night because, because I might go to jail. Physical fear of physical separation from my wife, from my family, from my friends. Thinking about the things that I was going to miss in jail. Graduations, birthdays, anniversaries. Practicing driving for driver's license. Being, sending my kids off to college. Making my wife return to full-time work so that she can support us because I can't. Challenges in finding employment now. Restitution to pay huge amounts of money more than I can ever make in a lifetime. Not having anything left. Not to mention being disgraced, having to foreclose on my home, declining my neighbor's property values, let alone mine, and the cost of the judicial system. For the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't even actually say all kinds of evil. He just goes out and says, he, he's probably exaggerating, but he's exaggerating to make a point. The love of money is the root of it all. Because it's not really about the money. It's really about that word love. It's really about that word pursue. It's really, I think, about greed. I mean, isn't the love of money just greed? The greed is the root of all evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. If you had sat with my friend, you would see a man who has been pierced with many sorrows. I hope none of us have to go there, but really, what does it mean to pursue? If that's really what it's about, pursuit, not really money. Like if I had a magic wand that just dropped down from God and this magic wand could give us whatever we wanted, but we only had two choices. Choice number one, Okay, this is when it gets fun. Now you're all awake. Choice number one, you could have the perfect body with the perfect face, the perfect figure. You'd never have to work out. People would like walk by you and go, whoa. I mean, you'd have the perfect muscle tone that you could imagine, whether you're male or female. And you could just, and you'd never have to diet. You'd never have to eat right. You'd never have to work out. Option number one. Option number two, you could have perfect contentment. I mean, we all know. We're like, can we have a secret ballot? <laughs> right? We all, we all know, option number two, if we chose perfect contentment, option number one wouldn't matter anymore because we'd be content. wouldn't matter what we look like. But it's not the magic wand. It's not that question. It's really the question behind that question. What occupies more of our mental space? What do we pursue mentally and physically? What do we think about? Isn't it that a lot of us run after that? I know I do sometimes. 
whether it's health or beauty or whether it's finances. And, and we can meet a lot of, a lot of poor people that, that aren't godly. It, this is not saying that if you're wealthy, you're ungodly. Or if you're poor, you are godly. There are a lot of people that are poor and they're stingy and they pursue wealth. They love money more than the person that has it. I mean, the verse even said, like, God gives us everything for our enjoyment. So it's okay to go on a vacation. It's okay to have a good cup of coffee. It's even okay to sleep in a sleep number bed. Just saying. But what occupies our personal mental space? I mean, doesn't Jesus say it best in saying, where your, where your heart is, there your treasure will be? I mean, I think the only way, the only way we can have margin with money is to learn contentment. Look at verse 6. True godliness with contentment itself is great wealth. After all, we brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of it. So if we have our basic needs met, we should be content. Contentment isn't passive. It's not weak. It's not just resigning ourselves to something. It's actively pursuing God and actively finding satisfaction in Jesus. That's why I think he says in verse 11 and 12, he says, but you, Timothy, man of God, you run from these things and you pursue right living, pursue godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness. Because when we learn contentment, we can have margin with money. So Brian and Deanne are going to come up and share their story of what it means to learn contentment. Good morning. So Brian and I had made um, a lot of stupid decisions regarding money or non-decisions, as the case may be, in our first 17 years of marriage. We've been married 21 years now, and it's only been in the last three years that we've learned how to handle our finances God's way. Prior to that, we had followed the misguided notion that most of our society believes today. We were living the American dream, and that you will always have payments because the only way to get anything is to put it on credit, whether it's buying a car, going on vacation, buying a house, or buying new furniture. Early in our marriage, we were both working full-time as engineers. We didn't have a budget. Honestly, we never even thought about it. We never fought about money because we never talked about money, never discussed our finances, our purchases, or our giving. We just bought what we wanted, when we wanted, and if we didn't have the money to pay cash for it, we put it on credit. That's just the way we lived, and we thought that was okay. We always had enough money to pay the bills when they were due, so we thought it really didn't matter. We had what we wanted, but we didn't have a dime in savings, and we were living paycheck to paycheck. In January 2004, I felt the Lord leading me to quit my engineering job and stay home with my kids. I did that in July of 2004. But unfortunately, we didn't cut our lifestyle to match our newly decreased income. We thought we did, but because we had a budget, we didn't have a budget, we had no idea what that even was. 
but we no longer had daycare. I gave up my cleaning lady. I gave up my fancy fake fingernails, and figured that that would be enough. But it wasn't. We just kept on living the way we always had, and our debt began to grow very quickly. Our tithing was very sporadic. We were borrowing money from one credit card to pay in the other. And in August 2006, we actually missed a house payment because the payment bounced. That should have been a wake-up call, but it wasn't. It shook us up a little, but it didn't fully wake us. In December 2006, we refinanced our home into an awful mortgage. If any of you know anything about mortgages, the one that we got is worse than a subprime. It's called toxic, and we still have it today. We also added a home equity loan on top of it to pay off all our debt. This is what Dave Ramsey refers to as a consolidation loan. <laughs> We vowed never to use debt again, but what we didn't realize at that time is that our debt was not a result of our lower income. Dave Ramsey says that debt is 80% behavior and 20% head knowledge. Our debt was a symptom of our behavior. We were living way beyond our means, and even after the consolidation and refinancing, we continued to behave the way we always had. Building up our credit card balances once again, paying less than the interest on our mortgage, and still not discussing it with each other. However, God began to convict us separately regarding our finances and our behavior. I knew that we were in debt because when I'd go to buy something, I was smart enough to ask Deanne which credit card to pull out of my pocket and hand to the cashier. I think we had four credit cards at that time.、Uh, Deanne was really kind of responsible for doing all the finances, and even though we never talked about it, I knew the balances on all of them were high. Thus, the question at the at the checkout counter. Yet I chose to live in denial, and that's not a a, a river in Egypt. <laughs> It was denial of the of the fact that we were in deep financial problems. One of the credit cards that we had was tied to my airline miles, and when when we took that out, we took it out specifically because I was doing a lot of travel at the time, lots of airline tickets, and we wanted those airline miles. We'd pay it off as soon as we got reimbursed by the company, and that was the agreement we kind of had. One day I was leaving for a trip, and I stopped at the cash machine to use this credit card to get my cash for the. The odds and ends that we had on travel. When I tried to withdraw the the money, it was denied because the credit card was full. I called Deanne about it, and she said she'd make a payment so I could use the card the next time. Again, I knew something was wrong, but we still didn't talk about it. At the time, I was listening to Focus on the Family radio show. During my commutes to and from work, in June of 2007, Dave Ramsey was the featured guest. He talked about debt and how damaging it is to marriages and personal contentment. The rejected card had left me feeling very uncomfortable. Dave went on to discuss the importance of not having debt in order to experience financial peace. 
Proverbs 22.7 says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. And I did feel like a slave to this debt. Dave said the key to achieving financial peace was to make short-term sacrifices to clean up our mess. When he said you should start selling everything to pay towards your debt, so much that the kids might think they're next. <laughs> That's when I realized how serious of trouble we were in. But we weren't openly discussing our finances, so I decided to make a copy of that broadcast, and I handed it to Deanne and said, here, you need to listen to this. I did. I saw everything Dave said in us, but we still didn't talk about it. To be perfectly honest, I didn't want to give up my stuff, and I don't think he did either. So life continued, same old, same old. In early December 2007, I had just finished a 40-day journey with the Lord, addressing an area in my life that had been causing me considerable stress. I was feeling very confident in my ability to overcome my challenges, and I said to the Lord, okay, God, that was easy. Now, what should we work on next? And just as clearly as if he'd been talking to me in person, he said, fix your finances. I was blown away. I remember actually looking around the room to see if anybody was there. That's how clearly that command was. Well, I didn't want to do that because that meant I'd have to give up my stuff, I'd also have to come clean with Brian about our dire situation. Again, he knew we had financial problems, but because he wasn't actively participating in the bookwork, he had no idea the magnitude. So I told God to pick something else to work on because I didn't want to work on that one. <laughs> but every morning during, that quiet, during my quiet time, the rest of that month, I'd ask the same question and he'd issue the same answer. And I was more convicted after each quiet time with God. So I went on one last spending spree, kind of like that last big meal you have before you go on a diet. It was Christmas. I wanted my kids to have one last really nice Christmas. And to me, that meant the really expensive gifts. Probably a lot of those things that, yeah, they didn't really need. It was great for my kids, all right. They loved it, but it was horrible for me. The guilt and the shame was eating me alive. On Saturday morning, January 5th, 2008, yeah, I remember the day, I woke Brian up that morning, and I told him everything. It was a tough time for us. Having listened to that radio broadcast, I can't even read this now, we knew where to find the tools that we needed. We bought Dave Ramsey's book, The Total Money Makeover. We read it that weekend together. And we began our journey together to be good stewards of God's money, to do what God directed us to do with his money, and to become debt-free. We discussed, we created a budget, we discussed, we created a debt snowball, we discussed, we set goals together, and we discussed some more. You getting a picture here? 
The number one biggest thing Dave's program helped us to do was to learn to communicate with each other about our finances. We now discuss our budget with each other twice a month, every payday. We have common goals, and we talk about our finances. The second thing it did for us was it caused us to address our behavior. We realized that we had to make some changes if we were ever going to be free of this bondage that we were in. Dave's program gave us a step-by-step -step plan for how to become debt-free and how to handle God's money his way. As we became more aware of the differences between our wants versus our needs, we became more content with the blessings God had already given us. He's always given us what we need. Dave's motto is to live like no one else so later you can give like no one else. We never really understood the joy that would come from being able to give to others until we became debt-free in March of this year. Throughout this whole process of paying off our mountain of debt, we put God first with our tithes and followed God's biblical financial principles. In turn, God has blessed us along our journey, not only financially, but also by giving us a passion for helping others experience financial peace. We have facilitated four Financial Peace University sessions at Faith Covenant Church, and we're doing our next one. Starts tomorrow, and there's still room. And we have witnessed changed lives and restored marriages. And now that we are debt-free, we are able to experience the joy of giving to others beyond our tithes as God leads us. We honestly feel that Dave's program saved our marriage, our family, our home, and we have truly found freedom and peace. And we didn't have to sell the kids. <laughs> Thanks. Like I said, I think the only way we can have money, margin money, money for margin, margin for money, is to learn contentment. But I think the only way we can learn contentment is to learn that Jesus is enough. You think about this guy, Paul, that wrote to Timothy. He also wrote in Philippians 4, 12 and 13. He said, I've learned how to live on almost nothing and with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether I have a full stomach or whether I have an empty stomach, whether I'm living in plenty or living with little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. I think one famous guy from the 20th century said it better than I could, so I'll quote him. If you're afraid that perhaps the love of money is getting a hold on you and on your soul, then start giving some of it away and see how you feel. If you feel really glad, then you're still safe. But if you don't, if it almost breaks your heart, then it's time to get down on your knees and pray to be freed from the sin of greed. It's going to ruin you unless you're delivered from it. I think this guy named Harry Ironside got it. This isn't so that we can have more money, so that, that, that our church needs some of it. If, if you think that giving or being generous is just one more thing to do as a Christian, then you've missed it. Following Jesus means that we're already rich. We have everything 
Because God has given us his son. Gave him as a sacrifice for you and I so that we could live in peace, so we could live in harmony with God, so we could have restoration with him. That's why we can be generous. That's why we can be content. Because we're coming out of this content and secure place where Jesus is enough. As we sing this last song, may that be our prayer, that, that Jesus is enough.